Let me invite you to open your Bibles once again to Matthew chapter 5. It's the second week in our series of the Sermon on the Mount, a series that we've titled uh, Kingdom Manifesto, because this truly is the closest thing to a manifesto of what it means to be a Christian and what it looks like to be a Christian or a follower of Christ uh, that Jesus has ever given us. Last week, as we looked at the Beatitudes, we were given an abstract definition. Uh, This week, as we move into other portions of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, we are given a practical illustration of what Jesus means. So we're reading this morning. We'll begin in verse 13 of Matthew 5 and continue through verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The word of the Lord. Let's go to our God in prayer. Our Father, as we commit this time not only to honoring you through worship of praise, we commit this time to worship you through listening to your word and to your spirit who not only brings us understanding of your word, but who brings the word alive to us. I pray that you would help us to understand, to apply, to repent, to believe, to be renewed where we need to, by your word and spirit, as we commit ourselves to this time. Bless us that we may be made a blessing, not only to you, but to those to whom you sent us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is himself the Word fully incarnated. Amen. It's not difficult to look around and to see why living in this area, well, why the whole greater Williamsburg, historic triangle, the peninsula, really the whole region is an enjoyable place to live. The area is endowed with natural beauty through the rivers and the and the forests that are quite plentiful, bringing about not only opportunity to kind of rest and be restored in their uh, beauty, but also recreational opportunities. And even if you're like me and sometimes think, ah, there may be something missing. I mean, being from East Tennessee, I miss the mountains. Yet, as I've said to a number of people, have asked if I miss being in East Tennessee, it's, well, there's enough trees and they're tall enough. There could be mountains on the other side of them. I'd never know the difference. I mean, you can't see past the trees anyway. But regardless of what else there may be, there is an abundance of natural resource and beauty that brings not only awe but joy to those who are willing to uh, embrace it. And that's one of the things that makes it not only a good place to to live, but an enjoyable place uh, to visit. The area is is cultivating an art community. And so we have the benefit of seeing and participating in some of the greatest artworks in the world despite being a small community. The area is rich in architecture, particularly if you like colonial and Georgian architecture, but it it brings about a peace and and a sense of nostalgia that uh, people are drawn to. 
the area is rich in history and the significance of it. There's all sorts of attributes, which is why most of you have chosen to live here, or some of you who are here visiting with us have chosen to spend the week here with us. And so the assets are, are very evident in themselves. And as I've been here, I've also noted another aspect of it, which in some senses is a spiritual aspect, not so much that this is a more spiritual aspect in a community than others. And we certainly have uh, our needs in that area as well. But as I begin to think of the promises of God and what it is God is doing and what God has promised to do, which is the work of his restoration, that which he has created, which fell into decay, that he has promised to restore through the redemption of his people and ultimately to restore all things to their beauty, this city in particular is a wonderful illustration of what God is doing because the city itself is at one time was significant, powerful, and great. People would travel all over Parts of the world would come here because of its significance. And then it fell into decay to the point of insignificance for a long period, perhaps for the majority of its history. And then, in a sense, was redeemed by the vision of one, a sacrifice of another, and rebuilt, restored, not just to be a place that would be worthwhile visiting, not just a Disneyland of fantasy, but the greatness of what's happening here is that people come because the glory of it is restored to what it was. The city is, restored, is trying to restore back to what it used to be, and that's what's intriguing to people. And in that sense, the city itself serves, the area serves as a, a picture of what God is doing. And so it's just another reason that makes this such a, a great area to, to live and to visit. And yet, despite all of the things that make this a great area to be in, we're not without our, our problems either. If you pick up the newspaper, you realize that while crime is low here, it still is present, too present, and impacting too many people. From petty things to serious things, our newspapers each week are filled uh, with instances of crimes that have been resolved, crimes that are yet to be solved, and are reminders that there's people out there who are planning on crimes that have yet to been uh, committed. And so therefore, we, we are showing the evidence of the brokenness and the continuing of the decay. Another area that's very glaring and that we as a church have become more aware of is that there is a distorted wealth issue here. And so there are many of the people, a high percentage of the people who live in and around the area really can't afford to be living here. And as a result, there's a hidden poverty. People are living in beauty, and yet at the same time, it is emptying them of their peace. And in its most extreme circumstances, we have a hidden community of the homeless. And that's just not the way that things are supposed to be. So there's great attributes of this community, and there are areas that need to be changed. The question that is before us this morning, particularly driven by this text, I believe, is, is this. What is it that we are going to do to participate in the change that needs to take place? What are we going to do to be bringing about the change. Now, some people might be here and thinking, well, not our problem. As the church, our responsibility is to be open to broken people and maybe to go to broken people and then help them escape the brokenness of the world. In other words, giving them the hope in Jesus Christ, we are simply a rescue boat that is out on a periodic mission, gathering the people we can, and then we'll carry them, hopefully safe from the toxic nature of whatever may be around us in the community, 
until we all arrive safely home on the shores of heaven. There's others of us who are here who probably think, well, the idea of being impacting and the idea of being a help, it, it's intriguing, and I would like to. But what is it that I'm able to do? Or what is it that we're able to do? I mean, as individuals, it seems that we're relatively limited. But even as a gathering of people, as a church, even on an Easter Sunday crowd, 400 people in a community of over 100,000. I mean, how much of an impact can we possibly have? I mean, you're not going to carry any vote or sway any vote in that way. You're not going to make any political power by being such a fraction of the communal population. How can we possibly exert any energy? And then if we look around, we realize that some of the people who are part of our number are relatively old, and therefore they don't have the strength and the energy or the, uh, to, to have the influence that perhaps they might have had in their time. Other people are quite young, and so therefore they don't have the strength or the wisdom or the opportunity to bring out an influence in our community in a way that perhaps one day they will. And then if you look around, there are, you'll notice that there are quite a few of us that have absolutely no talent whatsoever. So what exactly are we going to do to contribute to bringing about a transformation of our community? How much less in terms of the entire world? And those are understandable questions. Whether they are in terms of our ability or whether we are commissioned to do that, they are somewhat reasonable. But we need to look at this passage and we realize that Jesus does not share our apathy nor our skepticism. Because what this passage says very succinctly is, that God's people will have a transforming impact and influence on the world. And therefore, it's reasonable for us, as one of the expressions of God's people, to recognize that this is a commission for us, in a sense, but more than a commission, it's an expectation that we as God's people who are here in this time and this place will have a transforming impact and influence on our community. It's the gathering of all of God's people spread throughout the world that will bring transformation to the world. We will participate in that, but we are called and we are placed here in order to have a transforming influence on the community where we live. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying in these particular words, these few verses. Now, as we look at that and we unpack it, there are some things that we need to understand. First and foremost, there's a principle that we need to recognize that Jesus is implying through the language and the illustration he's giving. And first that we need to understand is that he is saying that Christians are radically different from non-Christians, that the church is radically different from the world. Now that can be very confusing at times. One of the reasons it's confusing is because when we became believers, or while we sit here as believers, and in our church also those who are unbelievers who gather regularly come seeking to understand what Christianity is, perhaps so that they would, uh, they're seeking something in, in, in your life, or perhaps just simply to understand uh, those who are in your life who are believers. And so we regularly have both believers and unbelievers sitting here. But if you were to look around, you can't tell the difference. And so that Jesus is saying Christians are radically different from non-Christians, that the church is radically different from the world, seems not so evident, at least not from our experience. But we do need to see that Jesus is saying exactly that. You are you are. You are the salt. You are the light. He's saying that we are something. Now, it also needs that we need to understand what Jesus seems to be implying here about our understanding of the world and therefore our community. Despite the inherent beauty, despite all of the wonderful blessings that we have in being here, 
Jesus is saying here that by saying that some are the salt of the world, the clear implication is the world itself is affected by sin and therefore is rotting. It needs salt to be at work in it. When Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he is reminding us that when Jesus, who is the light of the world, came into the world, he revealed the darkness that existed. And yet, as a people, we had become comfortable with the darkness, and the light actually hurts our eyes. People prefer the darkness to the light, but Jesus exposed the reality of the darkness. Now, as Christians, we need to begin thinking the way that Jesus is thinking. That's what of our call, that our minds would be renewed by what God has said, and not simply from our experience or what our high school teachers or college professors or our grandmothers necessarily taught us. But we think what God thinks. And so we need to interact with this. We need to understand what it is Jesus is saying. And whether you are primed to, uh, to agree yet or not, Jesus here is saying that the world with all of its beauty also is a place of darkness and decay. And in contrast to that world as a whole, which we live in and we contribute to both the darkness and the decay, Jesus says, those who are my people, you are different. I have made you a new creation, and I have made you useful. He says that, and we see that by the you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light to the world. And I'm astounded by the fact that Jesus doesn't say, you ought to be. You can be. You should be. See, the significance of the you are is that he is making a declaration of something that he has accomplished. He has not created religious steps as if we commit ourselves and we try hard that we will someday attain or that we should feel the impulse to do something. He's saying that if you are mine, you are my disciple, you are these things. We don't try to be salt and light any more than salt tries to be salt, light tries to be light. They just are. And we just are. It's part of the package of redemption. It's part of what Jesus has promised. And when we came to him, we were not just merely forgiven of our sin, but we were made into new creations. Something that those who have grown up in the church or those who are part of the church have heard at times. But if you're like me, that phrase, while in some ways very encouraging, can also be somewhat confusing, can it? I think back into my own life, and I became a believer at age 18, almost 18. At the time I became a believer, I was six foot one. The day after I became a believer, I was six foot one. Didn't see a whole lot new in my creation. I still had the same parents, same family, same circle of friends. I had just graduated from high school when I became a believer. I was headed to the college. That didn't change. In fact, very little of my life that I would be able to measure changed. So what's this new creation thing? Sometimes we get confused. The reality is when Jesus says we are a new creation, he's declaring a reality that we cannot measure. But it is a mystical reality. That is significant because sometimes we read these passages and we hear that God has made us different and we can assume that somehow we are superior to the people who are around us. Jesus nowhere says in this that we are superior or better. He says that by being in Christ, by Christ being at work within us, we are simply different. And so we look at the principles here and recognize, at least from a broad parameter standpoint, is that we are different 
as Christians than the non-Christians in some way that we may not be able to measure. And the church together is different than the world. And the reason that we see that is these, this passage is the you are are really not singular. They are, they are plural. They are the y'alls. Or since I mentioned this morning, we have a bunch of students back from Western Pennsylvania. They're the yins. Of, uh, this, is the, this is the total, the package. He's talking about the influence of his church in the world. Now, the church, any corporate gathering, is composed of individuals. So we as individuals are not exempt from this. But we, in our Western culture, focus so much on our individuality, we miss what Jesus is saying. And part of what he's saying here is not only are we different, but the way that we live together is part of what makes us different. He has gathered a community and has said, you are different, and he has made a difference. Not better, usable. We need to understand that that's what he's calling us to. The second thing we need to see is not only that we are, are different, but that those who are called by Christ must penetrate and permeate society in every sphere. I mean, Jesus uses an example here There's uh, when he's... Uh, talking about being salt and talking about light. And he gives in one a warning and then the other a promise, but both of which are to help us to understand that there is something to be, and when you are something, then you do. Now we need to understand that that's the order in which Jesus is speaking here. He's not saying, if you do, you will become. He's saying, you are, and therefore, because you are, this is going to be the result. Getting that wrong leads to religion. Getting that right leads to amazing grace or being amazed by God's grace. But it's very clear what he's saying here, that we need to be penetrating and permeating all of society. Because here he says, you're the salt of the, world, uh, salt of the earth. And salt cannot do what salt is supposed to do unless it happens to penetrate and permeate whatever the object. Salt must be engaged in order to function as salt. Jesus goes on and gives the warning, and if salt loses its, well, in the ESV, it says its taste, or other translations rightly say, if salt loses its saltiness, then it's worthless. Now, Jesus wasn't making a scientific error here, as if he didn't understand the elements that he has created. He understood, as some of you understand, that it is chemically impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is one of the more stable compounds that we have. And so salt cannot use its saltiness. That wasn't lost on Jesus, but Jesus understood that it wasn't lost on most of the people that he was speaking to in the ancient Middle East who used salt every day. It was an essential part of life, not just something they put on their corn on the cob so that they could get the additional taste. Maybe they did that too. But the primary purpose that people would use and had to in their day-to-day -day living so they would be able to nourish not only themselves but their families, salt was used as a preservative on anything that was able to rot. Salt was put into these elements so that it would be, so that it would preserve. But the issue is it was put into those elements. And so they knew salt. They'd used salt. They understood. They never experienced salt that was no longer salty. So when Jesus said, salt, if it loses its saltiness, what good is it? people's attention would have been grabbed. They would have realized, what's he talking about here? And forced them to listen and to think more deeply about what it is that he's saying. And for the believers, he's saying that not that we can lose that, at least in what we are, 
but that it is quite possible for us to lose the effect, which should lead us to wonder, were we other believers at all, or realize that we are definitely unfaithful to the call that he has placed on, his li on our life when he made us his own. Now, while salt can't lose its saltiness, there are a couple of things that can keep it from losing its impact. First is if it remains in the salt shaker, that it just huddles together with other pieces of salt, trying to isolate, hide behind that little glass or whatever your salt shaker is made out of, hiding behind that so that it doesn't get corrupt by the pollutants that are all around us in the world. And that this salt would actually be a gracious salt in the sense of it might see other potential little salts and bring them into the salt shaker and hope, though, that nothing, nothing comes against us ever. See, it still remains sodium chloride, but it is absolutely worthless when it is sitting in the salt shaker. And so in a very real sense, this is what Jesus, one of the things that Jesus is talking about. If salt is not engaging, then it, from all functional purposes, loses what it is created for. It loses its benefit. Salt is also used not only in preservation, but it's also used into bringing flavor. And we, as the people of God, are called together as individuals and as the church of God, not only here, but wherever the gospel is proclaimed, and the way that we live together gives a flavor of heaven to the world that are able to taste. And yet, unfortunately, I think that in our culture, the world is not so sure that the taste that we emit is one that they want. Part of it is their taste buds are rotted, and part of us is we give a funky taste that is not what Christ is about. See, the world is more convinced that we are against any, all things than we are for anything. People see the church and continually try to co-opt it to be a political action committee. I'm stunned as I hear a political uh, candidate who makes no credible profession of faith stand there and declare, evangelicals love me. And what stuns me all the more is the indications are he's right. I'm not making a political commentary here. You vote for who your conscience is and who you think is going to be best for our culture. But the idea is he sees those who are the believers of Christ who have been set aside, made in something new, as simply a gathering that if I can accommodate, they'll vote for me and I can win. That's tragic. But he didn't make it up on his own. We jumped into that position and tried to leverage ourselves without getting out of the salt shaker into influencing other people to do things for us. And the taste is probably about as tasty as the glass or whatever else your salt shaker is made of. It's not doing its part. It's not a new issue. I mean, sometimes the issue is we're out and about, but we're so somber, we're so uh, antagonistic and so concerned about the brokenness and the pollutions of the world that we're not actually celebrating the gifts that God has given us. I remember reading something at one point about the author Robert Louis Stevenson, who at one point in his own personal journal, Stevenson was a believer, faithful believer. Some of that is evidenced in some of the, the writings that he had. But in his own personal journey, journal, he wrote one day, I have been to church today, and yet I am not depressed. I mean, that's kind of right, isn't it, sometimes? I mean, we create a somberness. Now, Stevenson may have had reason. I remember reading at another time 
Oliver Wendell Holmes writing that he would have considered ministry if certain ministers he knew didn't look so much like undertakers. And so if you are somber, it's maybe because we're making you somber. But we, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who have been demonstrated through what he's done for us, and God saying to us, I love you, what more proof can I give to you? We should be celebrating more than anybody, and yet we are so characterized by our negativity, our hostility, our opposition. And consequently, we've lost our place of savor in our community. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's not a place for confrontation, not a place for speaking uh, to issues that need to be addressed, but we need to recognize that we are called to something bigger to be something else, we've been made something else besides just the tattletales. We point out not only the darkness, but we are the ones who are bringing the message of hope. And the celebration that we have should be enticing, not alienating. The third thing that would keep us from being effective use in the way salt is, is salt is not particularly salty when it is combined with some other chemical, when it's diluted and polluted, which is what we're prone to do when we think that the message that we live and proclaim is gospel plus anything. Our hope is secured in Jesus, and in him is found everything we could possibly desire. The issue is not just to settle for that statement, but to dig in and experience all the promises of God, which you have not exhausted. I've not even come close. It's like never-ending Christmas gifts for a four-year-old. You just dig in and toss the wrapping and find there is treasure in the promises of God in the person of Christ. God has called us to himself not just to himself, but to do something. And that means that we need to permeate all of our culture. Jesus said, not only are you the salt of the earth, but you are the light uh, of the world. And a light should never hide itself. One New Testament scholar uh, declares that that statement is a clear transfer to the new Israel, the church. Israel meaning people of God, from the old. In other words, when God called Israel to himself, there was, a pur- there was a purpose. In the covenant that he made with Abram, he said, I'm going to bless you, and through you I will bless the nations. Now, ultimately, there was a genealogical blessing that was to happen because in the line of Abraham through Israel, that was where Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, the one who would bless the nations, calling people from every tribe and tongue, and they would come from everywhere, from every generation, and be blessed in the person of Christ. Israel clearly was God's, uh, was God's means to bless the world in the person of Christ. But it wasn't isolated to that. Part of the blessing Israel was to have is in living together and being obedient to God, celebrating God's grace and blessings upon them, and then being sharing those to others and blessing the nations that were around them. And as the new Israel, the church, the same calling is upon us. We are people who are created new, made new, benefit from all of God's blessings, but the blessings are not to be stored up but to be shared indiscriminately with the entire world, inviting them in to celebrate with us so that they can taste and see that God is good in the person of Jesus Christ. 
There's a clear transfer that's taking place. And as the light of the world, we are the ones that, just like in the darkness, our light, eyes go to the light, we become or the object of people's attention. And just as, as the, in the darkness, a little bit of a light is able to give sight so that you can see where you're going, it's by the light that is shining through us that people should be able to see the world and see their hope. But we also need to not get overly arrogant about that because we're kind of like tiny little lights here. Jesus is talking about you don't light a lamp. And in his day, it would have been probably a, an oil lamp or something, which needs to be ignited. And we are not in ourselves anything, but as Christ is at work in us, he who is the light of the world ignites us, and through that, we are able to be light. Or we're like the moon, which emits no light itself, but on a full moon, the sun, which is shining off of it, gives enough light where we can see almost very clearly, sometimes almost daylight. But whether it is the moon or whether it is a candle or an oil lamp, the reality of it is, is while it is a beautiful and necessary light for those who have it, the light is eclipsed when the sun rises. We are a light to the world. Christ is the light who lights up in us and through us. We cannot be that apart from him. And yet he has done that for us. And we are that to the world when we engage it. Thirdly, we also see this. As those who are called by Christ, we must maintain the distinction that we have from the world, or with the world is a better way of putting it. We became a new creation, not through our own efforts and our own labors, but purely by God's grace. There's nothing we can do to be what Jesus declares us to be. But when these illustrations, Jesus is saying, but there is a responsibility that we have to make sure that we are what he's made us to be and not becoming corrupt into being something else. The illustrations and the warnings. If you lose your saltiness, if the light is hidden or somehow diminished. And this is an important aspect for us to consider. One is because it addresses and almost seems to support a common misconception that some people growing up in churches, particularly conservative, particularly fundamentalist churches, have that Jesus is addressing here and it reminds us of what it is that we are to do to continue to grow in the grace that is at work within us. We need to understand, because some people will ask this simple, this simple question, is, well, if we're supposed to permeate all of society, then where's this separation thing come in that uh, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 6? You know, be separate. Don't be unequally yoked with the world. I don't have time, I'm not going to go into a great detail on that particular passage uh, today because that's not the focus. I understand. People have taught that they've built their whole life and whole theology on that one particular passage. I can't dismiss the passage because it is in the Scriptures. But I can say this, we need to understand that all Scripture needs to be interpreted by all other Scripture. And the Apostle Paul who wrote that passage and speaking to the people in Corinth also wrote to the same people and said to them, Look, I'm not telling you to have nothing to do, you know, you can't be involved with it. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the entire world. And so he's pointing out the absurdity of thinking that we're going to live a life that is absent of the world itself. Second, Paul's example is that he went into the world and engaged those who were Jewish believers or Jews and those who were Greek and all peoples indiscriminately. He went to those who were 
uh, that, that were um, to, to, to preach the gospel so that people would be able to be reached. And we have Jesus' own words here, which do not support the idea that we should just hide ourselves off, but we are to engage. And so while I can't dismiss the passage of be separate, we can, I hope, agree to this conclusion is whatever that passage is talking about, it cannot be talking about having nothing to do with unbelievers around us. It can't, because it's in conflict with the rest of Scripture. The call of Israel, the call of the people of God, the clear teaching of other Scriptures, the clear teaching of Jesus, and even Jesus himself. I mean, think about it. Jesus came from the ultimate gated community, didn't he? I mean, heaven, you can knock, but you can't come in unless he lets you in. And he left that perfection to come into the ultimate decaying community, a world that had been impacted and corrupted by sin, and sin as it continues to spread and having its effect. He came into this world becoming like us, experiencing all of the ugliness that this world has to offer. And somehow we have the idea that we become more godly, by, more Christ-like by becoming less like Christ, Right? If our idea of holiness is wrapped up in the idea that we separate ourselves from anything that doesn't agree with us, doesn't look like us, or rejects God, well, then we're doing the exact opposite of what Jesus did because he entered into that world that hated him to love his enemies who disregarded him. How can we be Christ-like when we act the exact opposite of Christ? And yet, that's what the evangelical church of Jesus Christ has done. No wonder people think we taste foul. The taste is not Christ. The taste is whatever concoction of our own bitterness that we are offering to the world. And so the idea of separation, there is an issue of purity, which is really what that passage is talking about. And it can align with what Jesus is saying in this passage, but we must maintain the distinction, not separation. But we who have been made something different must therefore be shaped by him who has made us different and not by whatever happened to be the trend of the culture or of the world. And this is a significant problem that we have in our culture. We are to make that distinction because one of the ways that the salt is no longer salty is by being connected with something else, no longer being salt. We live in a culture for a couple of generations now, where the evangelical church assumes that the only thing that matters is seeing how many people you can get in. And the best way to get people to come and join you is to be like them, right? Because we eliminate that whole barrier thing. We, we find out what they like, we become what they like, and then, of course, they're going to flood in, and then the end result after a couple of generations is that the church will just be flourishing, right? It's had the opposite effect. The reason being is that the more we become like the world, the less we are shaped like Christ. A statement has been made that says that the more the church seeks to be relevant, the less relevant we become. And that makes sense. Because if we are just guided by whatever the culture is dictating to us, people may come and sit amongst us for a while, but then they realize, well, I don't need this because I can get this anywhere, right? And yet somehow that is what drives our thinking. Martin Lloyd-Jones said a generation ago is that the church becomes, uh, that when the church is the, the least relevant to the world is when the world is most attracted to the church. 
See, the people who live in this world, they may be happy, but they also recognize it's broken. Most do. They say things like, there's got to be more than this. Is there hope? And what we have done is we've hidden the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ by trying to become like them. We have watered down the promise of Jesus Christ so that it is not offensive to people. We don't tell them their condition. We just tell them how wonderful they are because you have enough problems in life, right? So we don't want to tell you that you have this sin issue. Try seeing an oncologist that does that. I mean, I got a lot of problems too, but I think I would get a new oncologist if he just thought, you know, you're having a bad week. I know this cancer is killing you, but why trouble you further? We have to deal with the reality. Now, I don't want an oncologist who's happy about the fact that I'm dying either, but that's a whole other issue. And too many Christians are happy that the world is going to hell. What Jesus is saying here is we who have been made something need to be very clear that we are distinct. Not opposed to, not separated from, we are distinct. He's made us a new creation, that he's made us usable. That's the grace that he's reaffirming here. So what is it we do? Well, one, we take our cues from Jesus and we feed on him and we grow in grace. We're continually being renewed by his word. We are participating in this table, which we're told feeds us in grace. We are in community with other believers who are speaking into our lives with the lens of the gospel. But we're not isolating ourselves from other believers and other neighbors because either they have no relevance to us or that we are afraid that they are going to corrupt us. The question that I want to ask to any believer who feels that the, their, their life should be characterized by withdrawal, even if you choose to bomb tracks down on their neighbors so that they get the, uh, get the gospel, is this. Do you believe that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world or don't you? And yet too many Christians believe that, oh, I don't think so. I mean, that's a nice thing to say in church. But if I go out there, he who is in me is not nearly as good as the world. And then I'm just going to be all messed up and my kids are going to be all messed up. But somehow we've withdrawn and we still want to reach our neighbors. Christ has called us to be permeating the world and to be distinct and to make sure that we're continuing to be shaped by his gospel and his message, his grace in our lives and feeding on that. And nevertheless, still interacting with the world around us. By being powered by Christ and growing in him, he says, you will make that difference. We need to see this. Jesus is saying this. You are very important people. Don't withdraw from the people that God intends you to bless. Back in the late 60s, early 70s, there was a movie that was made from a, a book. It was intended to be a spoof. It is a spoof, but I think too many Christians not only have inspired it, but assumed that the movie was meant to continue them in their practice. The movie is called The Gospel Blimp. I don't know if anybody's read the book or seen it. The premise of it is this, is that there was a family of believers who lived next door to an unchurched couple. It was quite evident because every Sunday while one, the family was going to church, next door they were pulling out the lawnmower, getting ready to go out to the lake or whoever they were, not church. And so the believing family, concerned about their neighbors, wanting them to have all the hope that there is in Jesus Christ and as part of the church, shared at church with one of their friends that they had this neighbor who was on church and they really wanted to reach them. And their neighbor said, let's get together and we'll talk about ways we can do that. And as it progresses, they brought in others. It was just basically turned into a large, small group where they began talking about different ways in which they could reach these neighbors. They built up flyers and tracks and they put them in strategic places that couldn't possibly be missed. And then as they started getting grander plans, and not only focusing on that, because they realized they all had neighbors that didn't know Jesus Christ, 
here's what we need to do. And the whole thing gets absurd reality when they decided, you know, we can hit a whole bunch of people at one time if we just rent a blimp and attach the gospel message to the blimp. Everybody would be able to see that. And so they do what they need to do to make the connections, and they get the blimp, and they send the blimp around, and they get back together. And in this time, they are gathering together, and they are praying for all their unreached neighbors and everything else, and they're gathering together. And then as the movie is ending, after they're all exhausted from all of their labors and the flying the blimp around, they get up on the next Sunday morning, and they see their neighbors getting into the car, holding a Bible, and they said, good morning, what's, what's going on? They said, well, we decided we needed to be in church. See, what had happened is the neighbors on the other side of the unchurched people had actually said, hey, why don't you come on over and have dinner? Why don't you come to our church? Let me share what Jesus Christ has meant in my life. And they engaged the people. Christians have spent too much time building blimps and not enough time making neighbors. We are out of the salt. We are in the salt shaker. We are not making the impact that we should. Or we are corrupting ourselves by trying to think, what's it going to take? And the answer is, just love the people who are around us and be who God has made you to be. Focus on the message that Jesus is teaching us. Grow in the grace. Rejoice in the riches. Share them when you have them. And the promise of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is, then you will not only be fruitful and effective, but then you will more and more be characterized by the very definitions that we read in the Beatitudes. We grow and we bless others. It's not that hard, but it is very scary. My prayer is that this church would be marked by increasingly permeating this community, not so that we take it hostage and become the power church so that we can exert our, flex our muscles on people, but so that we would be who God wants us to be. And that our neighbors, believers and unbelievers alike, would say, we are blessed because God had gathered a people at that church, not just us, but any church, and that we would go and we would seem to be friends of the poor and the homeless. And that that would spill over not only to our own community, but ways in which we benefit those who are hurting in any way and ultimately to the ends of the earth. That we would be blessings because we have been blessed for that very purpose. And Jesus, in these words, is calling us to look at ourselves and to realize what we can be because it is what we are. Now, are we being what we are? Father, we thank you for this word. And I thank you for the offense. And I thank you for its promise. And I pray that as the people of God, that we would allow this message to shape our thinking, even if it doesn't mesh with our preconceived ideas. Help us, Lord, to see as you see the world, our place, our identity, and what you would have us to be, that we may enjoy the fullness of your promise, and this world may be blessed by you through us according to your plan. Lord, may that be increasingly true in this church. May we repent of our hiding away and fear of our neighbors, and may we love them with the love of Christ, which may even mean death. But to you, then, becomes all glory and honor. We pray in Jesus.